afternoon and good evening, wherever and whenever you may be, and welcome to episode 114 of the Fate of Black podcast. Is this your midnight? I'm Optimus <laughs> Prime. <laughs> Mark Spectre. <laughs> <laughs> also known as a mom woman. I'm Clarice Lock. Oh, I don't know how to do a a robot voice. <laughs> Hello, I am Clarice Lockery. Beep boop, beep boop. And now I am a car. <laughs> Wait, okay. Um, I'm Anna Flint. <laughs> Thank you, Autobots. Uh, this week, <laughs> us Autobots roll out as we review Transformers Rise of the Beasts. Uh, while Hannah speaks to its stars Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback. Meanwhile, we solve a murder amongst hairstylists in Medusa Deluxe and visit 18th century France to hear the musical stylings of Chevalier. I also spoke to its star, the Chevalier de Saint George himself, Kelvin Harrison Jr. That man is very, very talented. Plus, in our hot take, we ask, is it possible to have a franchise without a fandom? Is it? Is it? Answers coming your way very very soon but first checking in with the crew how have our weeks been Clarice I'm gonna start with you you got, you, you got yourself a new okay. haircut which you debuted just for us we're yeah. so glad we're so blessed the Medusa do looks influence <laughs> <laughs> yeah for very uninteresting reasons <laughs> just that it's my hair my hair, head gets hot and so I wanted less hair on it <laughs> So I cut the hair shorter, and I'm going to make it not black, so it doesn't absorb the entirety of the world's sunlight. Um, that's just really good scientific reasoning. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's because when I lived in Phoenix, you just, you did not wear black ever. You didn't have black cars. Everything was white. Um, All right, fella. <laughs> no, I, was, I, was saying, I, I was saying that going someone's gonna make a joke <laughs> so i'm just gonna leave a pause <laughs> sorry the 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 premiere of twilight uh breaking dawn part two um was like i don't know i saw something on twitter about it and there's a video of like you know when um spoilers but you know when um What's the name of Michael Sheen's character? Arrow, like, literally, like, breaks Carlisle's neck off. And it was, like, this thing of, like, SNL going, all the girlies going mad. I was like, wow, that's, like, absolutely accurate. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine being there for opening night. I was there. It was amazing. (laughs) Talking about, I mean, that's a franchise with a fandom (laughs) that remains intact. Are they making more? Did I hallucinate that? More no. Twilight. No, Hunger, Hunger Games. Games. They're doing that prequel, aren't they? Yeah. No, I but think. I thought they were doing Twilight 2. I think they oh, might be doing Twilight. I, I How can I do Twilight 2? Twilight 2 is New Moon. <laughs> or like Twilight reboot or something. More Twilight. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, this time I hope she goes. I feel like when I was younger, I was Team Edward, and now I'm like Team Jacob. <laughs> I was Team... I don't want to be a part of this. <laughs> I would like to be excluded from the narrative. I don't know. I never had a Twilight face. I'm sorry. I was not a Twilight guy. But I am, shockingly, 
relatively intrigued slash excited for this new Hunger Games. I thought I was done with the franchise, but the trailer looked quite, quite fun and the cast is pretty insane. But you know what annoys me about it? It's doing the classic Disney thing of... Because President Snow is an evil person and it's like mm-hmm. doing the, let's do an origin story for him. And it's like, so I'm supposed to be sympathetic to this absolutely totalitarian dictator. They've yesified the fascists. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I don't know. I feel like some things I'm just like, a classic example of flogging an IP. Um, I don't know. I don't know if I want that back. But tell you what I did today, because recording on Friday. Mm -hmm. So there's the Film on Film Festival um, going on. And I have never seen Far and Away, the Ron Howard... uh, (laughs) Irish film uh, that is kind of like a precursor to Titanic, but no one liked it, starring Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And then we watched it on film, of course, and it was actually an original print that had never been played since it came out in like 1993, 92, 92. Oh my God, where has this film been in my whole life? I can't believe <laughs> I never saw it. It is so good and hilarious. And Tom Cruise has never been hotter to me. For some reason that hairdo just like works. Oh, it was great. And I was just saying to Clarice, like, before we kind of logged on, but, you know, one of my issues with Titanic was that Rose has no, like, kind of agency beyond, I want just freedom. You know, like Princess Jasmine in Aladdin. It's like, there's no sense of her, oh, I want to, you know, take care of myself or, like, do anything. There's no plan. It's just like, I just want to leave. And most most of her actions are pretty much, like, governed by the men like in her life whereas in this with Nicole Kim and Shannon I love the fact she's like I need to get out of this place I want to go to America I want to go to Oklahoma and find some land I want to get a load of horses and open up a ranch and go ride and I was like sick and the only reason that she gets like Tom Cruise involved in the first place she's like shit I'm a woman I can't go anywhere without a male chaperone so why don't you come with me I'll save your life so you don't get shot in this duel and even throughout it it's like her like knuckling down like you know learning how to like you know you know, going from a spoiled princess to like this now, like, yeah, I'm gonna, I know I'm gonna learn how to clean my own clothes and all this stuff. So I thought it was great. Uh, I Much kind of... like the real Nicole Kidman who lives on a farm. She yes, she, a farm. yeah, she lived, she lived the dream. She lived it was the so dream. Good. <laughs> She's living the dream. I Sons, really Tom Cruise. <laughs> I, I have not yet watched this film, but it sounds like I need to. You have to. It's so funny. Mm-hmm. And there's even like these shots, the final shot of like, <laughs> But like, there's a bit where we think Tom Cruise has died, and <laughs> the camera shot. <laughs> it's like I'm not gonna ruin it, but like, hmm. it's like literally. It was so, and it was so good to be at the Bayfly South Bank, and like, quite a few people were there at 11:15 this morning, just having an absolute ball of a time. Yeah, honestly, so good. I feel like it really does deserve a reappraisal because people just didn't get it. Like, I honestly feel like Ron Howard could do Titanic, but James Cameron could not do Far and Away. And apparently the Irish love it. It's a cold cash stick, apparently. Okay. Oh, I didn't okay. know that. Adding okay. it to the watch when list. When you liked it. Do you, you, you liked it when you were a kid, though, didn't you? You're Irish. <laughs> that accent was so much speak. better than Nicole Kidman's, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I assumed Ireland hated it, because the accents are a bit um, iffy. But... Yeah. Yeah, I watched. I mean, I had a very. My way into film was through Nicole Kidman. So I, like, binged everything that she ever did. Mm. <laughs> and Far and Away was one of those movies. But I haven't really seen it 
since, so I feel like I need to go back. I just yeah. remember her, like, beautiful, gigantic curly oh. hair, and it's so gorgeous. There's a bit where she, like, comes, she, first time we meet her, she's coming off this horse, and then she suddenly, like, takes her hair out and flips it, it's, and we're all yeah, cackling all like, with laughter. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, let it, let it all out. It's so good. <laughs> also, the bit where she's, like, literally taking a little peek at Tom Cruise's dick. It's great. I was like, yes. Yes, me too. <laughs> it's okay, because she's not a predator. <laughs> this point i'm like watching this movie is going to be more entertaining than watching hannah talk about this movie i just i don't know what do you mean you clearly want the goggle box version of it you want me that that's, that's, that should be the way that's why you should do screenings like do goggle box cinema viewing like you'll be in there and just like hear us chatting about it as we go along just us sat in front of like what's that science movie what's it that science theater 3000 or something that show yeah like that, where we just chat. Like, you want Hannah's commentary all the way through. We used to do that at uni. We'd go, because a bunch of comedians, we'd do host screenings and we'd just talk through it. I love that. And not like good movies, though. I think it was, was like, about to bud- say, Budemic. I feel like I, I feel like I wouldn't mind that after I've seen the movie in question. If but I'm you've obviously watch- seen Budemic, right? Everyone's seen Budemic. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, uh, okay. not. Um, but yeah. Sorry, sorry, oh I've not seen that movie. I don't think I've seen, seen it either. <laughs> Some of the worst, best, worst bird CGI effects I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, what have I been up to this week? I introduced a movie this week at a screening. That was fun. I haven't really done that before. Uh, not just uh, purely for introductory purposes, uh, but Disney asked me to introduce the multimedia of Chevalier. Uh, which is a film that we will be talking about later on today. And yeah, I had a good time. Uh, the crowd was really responsive, which is always fun. And yeah. Hannah, I know that you've done that, that sort of stuff before, right? Well, introducing things, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's easy to fucking part of my job. Hello, <laughs> here's a movie. Enjoy. <laughs> I may have put a little bit more flavor. Yeah, man, you know. <laughs> but that was fun. No, it's also fun. At least for a couple of us on this pod, Transformers Rise of the Beast. For centuries, our kind has stayed hidden on Earth. But darkness has found us again. Prime. This is about the fate of all living things. Unicron is coming. I see no changes. Wake up in the morning and I ask myself, it's like worth living, should I transform myself? I'm tired of being stuck and even worse, I'm all about bungles hurt, so I'm looking for a transform key to snatch. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Okay, Optimus Prime and the Autobots take on their biggest challenge yet when a new threat capable of destroying the entire planet emerges. They must team up with a powerful faction of Transformers known as the Maximals to save Earth. Directed by Stephen Capel Jr., Transformers Rise of the Beast starts Anthony Ramos, Dominique Fishback, Ron Perlman, Peter Dinklage, and Michelle Yeoh. Hold uh, on, hold on. I can't let it go and said that the film also stars the Optimus Prime, Peter Cullen. We need to say that. Not to be confused with Edward Cullen. <laughs> 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 um, okay, so um, this week, yeah, I got to uh, sit down with Anthony Ramos and Dominique Fishback, and that was a fun 
chat. Um, Anthony and I bonded over our shared uh, <laughs> ownership of a ventilator inhaler. Um, <laughs> we also talked about this, you know, shooting it, getting mosquito bites in Peru. Um, and also, I suppose, like, even their methods of uh, relaxation. It was quite interesting, actually. Like, I mean, Dominique, you know, I think we've got a bit of an exclusive in this one. Um, so yeah, um, so uh, before we get into our review, here is that chat. Anthony the Ramos and yeah. Dominique Fageback, welcome right. to the Fageback podcast. Um, I'm going to ask the most original question that I could possibly ask. Um, so uh, what, is your, what was your original relationship with Transformers? <laughs> <laughs> um, Beast Wars, original relationship. I actually was looking up the VFX on my phone on this lunch break. I was like, wow, we've come a long way. Was that so you can get answers? So you can like, wait, if anyone asks me, it's like, actually. Right, right, right. That's because I knew we were going to talk about this right now. <laughs> now, I was just looking at my phone. I was just like, I was like, I wonder what it looked like back when I was watching it because I just forgot. <laughs> the dude was making like the roaring sounds for Cheetor. He's like, my name's Cheetor. I was like, wow. We've, yeah, we've come, we've come, we've come a long way. So there wasn't that on this film. Mm-mm. Okay. None well, of that. While we were filming, it was. While was we that, were filming, like, yes, there, there it was. It was like bang. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, yeah. Our first AD was. was doing all the sound effects of the explosions <laughs> and the uh, the roars and all and those kinds of things. So yeah, there was there was that when we were shooting. Do you just have like a random like runner like shouting out the lines of all the um, the Autobots and stuff? So you respond to. We had. Like we had a, we had readers yeah. who would be off to the side. They'd be like, "Air Razor, oh, we have to stick together." <laughs> and, you know, Mirage, you were inside me. You know that <laughs> wild line that everybody goes crazy during the movie for. Um, it did know. actually catch everyone off guard. Oh, a hundred percent. I can't even believe. Yo, I was just happy it made it in the movie. I was Great. so grateful. <laughs> Dominique, what was your relationship with Transformers? Um. Well, I was a even Stevens fan. Oh, uh, really? Yes. Yeah. So I w- kind of followed where Shia was going, mm. and he did Transformers, and I was like, "Wow!" I I always wanted to be an actor, so I was like, "Man, I gotta do something like that." And I didn't think it would actually be this, but this is what you've been building your whole career towards. <laughs> I don't know about the whole thing, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Anthony and I also knew each other before filming the movie, and we used to sit in the cafe and be like, "Oh, what are we gonna?" do together something epic and something Brooklyn and didn't know that the universe was transpiring so that we could do something this epic and this Brooklyn together. It's nice. Your, yeah, Brooklyn. I'd like to talk about that because I feel like New York is a character in itself. I mean, you work with Spike Lee, so like, you know, it's, it's part of the kind of like visual yeah. language and so much of these films have been set in like suburban spaces. But how, what did it mean for you to shoot kind of in this setting as you guys being New Yorkers as well? Um, it was fun. It was fun. The movie being um, being set in Brooklyn because we could really like. There's a specific culture in Brooklyn, and and I think that me and Dom naturally, we just naturally had that jokes we would we'd make like su- even suggestions like we could speak intelligently about how we could shoot this authentically, mm. you know, because we grew up in that time in Brooklyn, so. We were like, nah, 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 you wouldn't say that. Or yeah, 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 no, like you would, we would do this this way. Or, or nah, kids in Brooklyn would crack a joke that way, you know, like, or, you, you know, like just things like that. To shoot that car scene on that bridge, that's the one that you would take 
from Bushwick to Manhattan. That's that's the bridge that you mm. would get on. You wouldn't get on the Manhattan Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge. You get on the Williamsburg Bridge, like you know, stuff like that. You know, really specific things. You know, so it was fun. It was fun. It was fun. One of my, I said it was fun three times just now. Um, it was, it was fun. That's the fourth time. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure it was fun. You've said yeah. it too many times. Right. <laughs> so crazy. When when Dom says I'm from East New York and I say I'm from Bushwick, the crowd went insane in yeah. Brooklyn when we had the premiere. They went crazy. Mm, yeah. So uh, so that that's the most fun part about it. That's five. Times. Yeah, and like you said, you're not, <laughs> you're nineties um, kids. Yes. So, like, doing this, and also, I suppose you were younger kids, you're obviously not your age back then, but, like, other things that was quite fun for you to kind of, like, I always think, like, now there are things that I can wear that I wouldn't have got away with as a teenager in the noughties, like certain clothes, hence mm. my outfit. But, like, do you know what I mean? There's things like, oh, I look like such a dweeb. I love like, the feela, though. I love oh, the, come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's nice. Um, but there are things that you kind of, those, you, you were excited to revisit, like, even in costumes. I mean, the soundtrack as well is amazing. Yeah, I'm definitely the, the wardrobe was incredible. I loved the like choker that I got to have and the suspenders was really cool. The the beeper that Elena has, mm. I just remember my mom having a beeper growing up. So it was yeah, it was just really nostalgic and a lot of fun to uh, to know what, what we had and didn't to know that our family and friends would see it. I did a we did a screening for family and friends and one of the uh, one of my high school ca- classmates. His daughter was like, you went to high school with my dad? Like, she couldn't believe it. And all of the kids, they were really, like, inspired. Yeah. Oh, it's always better when you do a homegrown crowd. Sure. Um, so I always feel like every time you do a film, something about your acting craft, you pick something up, right? And whether it's stage, TV, film, I'd love to know what you took away from this that might have added to your kind of toolkit of performance. My, my love for, like, action like I now I'm like yo I'm trying to be in I'm trying to get get active I'm all action movies like I love it I just love physical acting I love the fight choreography I love training for it you know it, it's exciting it just it just adds another thing to to the job that I didn't know I was going to enjoy as much as I did I mean you know I, obviously I've, I've done musicals before and mm-hmm. choreography and stuff like that but it's just it's a different kind of choreography and you know it's just like it was challenging it was really challenging and i enjoyed it you're pretty knackered at the end of the day i was going i was done you guys did so much running yeah and i was tired watching i was like wow they're running again Again. they've not run so many through so many tunnels like how is that doing it do you have like is it a lot of takes or it's like one and done we got it no, it's definitely a lot of takes. Because even if it's not us messing something up, it's like, oh, camera had to fix this. It's had to be an adjustment. Uh, the eye line for Mirage or the eye line for Bumblebee or whatever. So it was definitely a lot of running, especially the day that we were in the uh, were in the jungle. Oh, yeah. It was like 110 degrees, yeah. and we just kept sprinting back and forth really far. Also, what's, what's tough, though, sometimes is, you're running too fast for the camera. So you got to try to act he like you're running fast. He kept leaving me. It was like, Anthony, relax. It, uh, yeah, you know. But yeah, you got to like act like you're running fast and you're really not. Yeah. <laughs> Just to try to keep, you know, the camera guys like, yo, my man, you can't be, you, you, you're not running a 40. You're not running a 40. Heathcote is know. like, Heathcote was our, one of our camera ops and he was amazing and he just, like he would be running, he would going backwards, you remember? Uh, Eco, was, yeah, no, yeah. Eco was crazy. Yeah. He was amazing. So was it, you didn't get injured, hopefully. No. no I got, got injured, for you sure. You thought what happened? 
I mean, the harness. What were you, were you using? No, 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 no. No, I've just just the harness, like um, the different types of harness. But there's one that goes around that goes around your 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 quads like this. Mm. So just just getting lifted and staying suspended in the air for quite a while starts to really pull on you. Someone forgot about me. I'm yeah, no, here. I was like, yo, put me down, please. <laughs> like, yeah, I even, yeah, it was. I had my, yeah. um, we were running in the cave and I turned the corner and I punched one of the stone. Oh, no. Do when, you remember that? Well, when you had to do that fall. Yeah, you went to get the trip, you talking about? The trip? Was yeah, but it was, steps? it was, it was when, uh, right out of the, right out of the cave area, we, you jump off, remember you jump off and I run downstairs? Oh. And then we turned to, to like the maze thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I spun the corner and like banged my hand in there for the rest. I was like this. Oh no. Yeah. yeah. She had a mad mosquito bite on her lip too. <laughs> oh no. Oh, we, were, we were in the jungle. Horrible. We were in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> we were in the jungle and it was like a, a take. And uh, I felt the mosquito. I was like, but I didn't want to mess up the take. That was how dedicated I was to what we do. No, no. Uh, and then as soon as it said cut, I went like this and I smacked it. And then. I looked at Anthony. I was like, "Do I have a mosquito?" He was like, "No, nah, you good." A mosquito bite. I was like, "He was like, you good?" And then I, one second later, I turned back. I was like, "Are you sure?" He was like, "Oh, it's red." <laughs> and like every, every second, I kept turning back. He was like, "Oh," and so Steve was like, out. "Yeah, Steve was like, oh, we'll edit, we'll like CG, we'll CGI it like, yeah, yeah, out, yeah. we'll take it out." And so I did a take, and then he was like, "Cut, that's a wrap." I was like, "One take." He was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." yeah. Then everybody was like, "Oh my god!" So I had to get Benadryl, and yeah. it went oh down with like an hour though. It was wild. It though. Oh mate, yeah, yeah, yeah. I this is why I can do an action film. I bruise like a peach, <laughs> and I'm very susceptible to mosquito bites. I can't go anywhere. Yeah, oh, you wouldn't have been good in Peru. No, You're susceptible to this. I mean, I guess I get bit pretty easily by mosquitoes too. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Somebody, yeah. No, I think there's I something know. about your like certain like some people just attract it. I'm asthmatic, and apparently asthmatics are more attract like mosquitoes like us. I don't know, there we go. You got That's... the pump, you got the albuterol? <laughs> no, I got Ventolin. You got Ventolin? <laughs> I want a blue, baby. Uh, yeah, yeah, nah, I got the blue one too. Oh, wow, yeah, there yeah. we are. Brothers in inhaler arms. Come on. Um, so let's talk about working with the director as well, I suppose. what what I feel like filmmakers have an accent, so what was his, like what was his way of working? Re relentlessness. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Stephen was great. He just works so hard, and he's so specific. He mm. sees everything, like the smallest thing. He sees every single thing. He pays attention to detail so much. Um, I'm trying to think of what his thing was, though. Does he give you many notes, or is he just like, yeah? Can you he mention? No, he gives notes. Hundred percent gives notes. What one of his things? Um, notes. It was something we kept copying. Detailed. We kept saying something he always said. Yeah, you said in the makes all the time, but he mix. said something else that we kept saying. Lock it, let's lock it. Oh, 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 we locked in, <laughs> locked in, locked in. <laughs> <laughs> right before everybody, right before every take. All right, everybody, he be like, all right, y'all ready to go? All right, we locked <laughs> in. <laughs> we locked in. <laughs> so we like, yeah, bro, we locked in. So both your characters have moments where you're trying to find ways to relax. Obviously, it's the breathing, and then your singing are there things that you do in order to like prepare when you're feeling anxious or even before you do a take any kind of like rituals that you do um not before a take per se because i don't know i don't know if i ever have enough time but i do like to write everything out i've been doing this new thing where i, I write all the negative things that i could think about that's in my head and then i uh shred it 
Mm. Like I and then I so I don't reread it. I just leave it. But before I used to also write those negative things out. Then I would meditate and then I would journal again. And I find that uh, after I meditated, I had clarity mm. and that the other things were uh, uh, fears that potentially would never happen, mm. and so they were kind of useless. Oh, that's good. I have anxiety and intrusive thoughts. That's what they tell you. That's oh. what my therapist says. What does she say? What's she she says, like, the, one of the things on therapy is, like, write out your intrusive thoughts and then oh, kind of, like, put them aside in a way. Nice. It works sometimes that's if I can smart, spend time to write them out. Uh, so you write out your intrusive thoughts? Or are you now going to do it? You're like, oh, I'll take that. Oh, I think I'll do it now, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I don't write my thoughts out. I just kind of, like, do You just journal for the first say. time the other day. I did. I did journal. I did journal. And then I started writing, and I was like, Probably, I don't know if this is for me, man. You could like, be in a Paul Schrader film, Man in the Room with a Diary. Yeah, 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 yeah. There you go, yeah. next role. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was it was wild, though. I was like, damn, this is, all of this stuff is on my mind? Man. <laughs> it's crazy. I was like, so, um, but uh, I want to do it more. I, people have been telling me to do it, you know, especially in this time, like, all this stuff happening, mm-hmm. just, like, really just writing it down and recording, like, like how I feel. Now. Imagine your grandkids being able to know, like, what it was exactly like for you to do the Transformers. Like, you skipped, you just went straight to grandkids. Yeah, because kids is like, you, they can hear for, like word of mouth like more, but like when you get old, your memory gonna fade and then you ain't gonna be able to tell the story. Also, yet, right? when you inevitably do your memoir, that'll come in handy. Yeah. You know, come every, on. I have to That's do that, right? Now. I have to do journal since I was 12. I'm oh. working on it right now. Your I memoir? love that. Well, it's a book of poetry, but maybe I'll do a documentary about love. Oh. A documentary about love, mm-hmm. like that. Uh, love, finding love within myself, to love myself. And as above, so below, and as within, so without. You heard me. Like that. Thank well, you, you heard it here first. I'm very <laughs> excited for this. But also, yeah, everyone go see Transformers first. Go hey! see Transformers first. <laughs> Transformers. Then go get the memoir about love. <laughs> And then go get my memoir for whatever it's going to be about. It's, it's my album. Go get the album when it comes out. And Viano is out right now, June 2nd. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Thank right, you. Thank you. Okay, Transformers, Rise of the Beasts. Um, this is, ha- what, what number of movie is this in the Seven. franchise? Seven. This is also set in the 90s, like with Bumblebee. Um, okay, let's, let's get into, I suppose, the... Um, uh, coherence <laughs> of the story <laughs> and um, just basically that the story. Um, I want to go to you to Chris first because I know it's, you struggled with things and didn't understand certainly the kind of like law where we are and certain inc- maybe inconsistent stories. So what did you think of that part of the film? Um, to quote one of my favorite TV shows, I think you should leave with Tim Robinson. Yes! I don't know what any of this shit is, and I'm fucking scared. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, like, genuinely did not know what the fuck was going on at any point. There was a key, Omicron, he's a planet, I guess. Unicron. Uni- whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and this is what really got me. The Maximals, right? Mm-hmm. So they're Transformers who transform into animals, but they come from a different planet and were animals on that planet, but there were not those animals on that planet. So how the fuck did they know to transform into those animals? And why did Michelle Yeoh bird have feathers? Where the fuck did she get feathers from if she's a robot? They didn't explain this at any point. Was she part bird? They didn't say. <laughs> Wait, the like, Maximals are from a different planet to the Autobots, right? 
Yes. Yeah. So maybe that's yeah, but because, yeah, but maybe they're just like a different species of orbox that just does it like that. Why? Why? Are why would they? But there's there's birds and cheetahs and gorillas and all animals on Earth on this different planet. Yeah. So it's a different it's, dimension. It, it's a flimsy explanation, but they do say that they are warriors from our past and future that doesn't mean anything <laughs> what the fuck do you mean warriors from our past and our future what does that mean i feel like i use this quote a lot but to quote tenet don't try and understand it but this is the thing this is the thing i was gonna get to the point like it it is absolutely befuddling it makes no fucking sense the sec like if you put any thought into it but there's so much of it like there's so much exposition in these movies and they are constantly talking about fucking keys and we have to go get this key but there's two parts of the keys and we've got to look at this thing when i feel like the better version of transformers for me would be that takes two minutes and then we can just get to the robots punching each other in the head mm. like these movies make you do so much homework just to get to the action scene and i just my brain can't tolerate it i just like don't enjoy it on any level and maybe that's a me thing because i understand tenant and apparently that's weird yes it is <laughs> That, yeah, but Tenant actually makes internal logical sense. This is just not like, yeah, this is a bird. It's got feathers. I don't know where they got feathers from because it's not a bird. It's a robot. Just fuck you if you question it. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really just don't understand this franchise. I fundamentally I don't understand this franchise. I'm I, so I, sorry. I will say I did not struggle with it because there's a lot of bits where I was like. I'm not here to do that. I'm just here for like, they want to get back home. They need this key to get back home. But, but also then, they wanted to unlock this thing. And in a way, why what have those with... scenes then? That's no. my question. Why? Hey, look, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying it's a very well written story and thought out, but I didn't struggle with it in the sense of it didn't confuse me at all. It was just like, I just accepted these things. I will say though, that I think for me, this felt this is like the MCU-ification <laughs> of the Transformers franchise because I want to say, now you've said Omnicron, I just want to say Omnicron one time. <laughs> but like Unicron, Unicron sounds like a Unicron, fucking Bitcoin. It sounds like a, like oh, a... Omnicron was that strain of COVID. Yeah, yeah, COVID. COVID. Yeah. So sorry. <laughs> I think for me, that was like Galactus, it felt like Galactus, uh, you know, coming yeah. a world eater. And then we have later in the story, there's the kind of big fight, and then we get like an Iron Man situation, an Infinity War scenario situation. And it was kind of like, oh, okay. So and I Ultron. Spoke... That looked yeah. like Ultron, that one robot. <laughs> right. And, but yeah. also DC. Like, I mean, there's a whole bit where it felt like Justice League, in a way. <laughs> the, the sh I mean, I didn't like either versions. But um, Amon, so let you can jump in about the basic narrative. I mean... Let's be be real. It's not the most well plotted out in the sense of making sense, but actually, for me, and I think for you, it didn't really hamper your enjoyment of it. Uh, excuse me, Hannah. I don't know what you're talking about. I expect this to be nominated for an Oscar in a few months for screenwriting. It's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, I absolutely love. Um, no, <laughs> um, no. Uh, I, I, I didn't struggle with the story at all. Um, I thought it was pretty simple to follow. Um, again, the emotional thing of Optimus wants to get home to Cybertron, 
you thought there was one part of the key, but there's two part of the keys. Um, there's a couple of scenes which very much, this is the exposition dump, here's what you need to know, know going into next scene. Um, but they were brief enough to the point where it didn't bother me that much. Um, and I sort of got what I needed to know and I understood what was then going to happen moving forward. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's it's not the most densely potted thing, um, but I got what I needed to from it. My thing with this, and it's also my thing with pretty much all the Transformers films, even though the human characters, at least in this film, were decent enough. We do not need human characters in these films. There is so much awesome lore and awesome stuff, character stuff to get into with the Autobots, especially our Doctor's Prime and the Maximals and in previous films, Decepticons, that is only given basically a scene or two at the absolute maximum, and that is it. Like, there's stuff between Optimus Prime and Primal that is really, really rich if they put their minds to it. Um, especially with, when, he, when he realized that Primal, he has a line like, you know, I'm named after you because word of your legendary deeds has gotten to basically this planet and to me. And because of that, I'm na- like, bring us more of that relationship. And instead I agree of the- with you. Have we had a, have we had a Transformers film where it begins with in the se- I know this one did, but like really like tracks the experience of the Autobots and the actually Rob. They're they're less of the supporting characters. They're yes. the main character protagonists, whereas the humans are supporting characters. The thing is, now, I would like to see that more. <laughs> Me too. The, the, the thing which is so frustrating is that the first five minutes of Bumblebee are that because they are uh, set in Cybertron. Well, the first that, five minutes of this uh, one uh, is uh, that as well. The, the, yes, to a degree. Um, the, the first five minutes of this film is set on the Maximals' home planet. The first five minutes. Yeah, of but Bumblebee. that's not in my yeah. point. It's yeah, set yeah. with the. It's set yeah. with the mate. Yeah. <laughs> it's set with the robots. There aren't any humans. Saying. They're all robots. <laughs> I know, yes, but like that is some really, really rich stuff which they have not nearly mined as much as they should do, and that's still my frustration with these films. We get one scene with Primal and Prime really getting into it. We get, you know, a couple of scenes. There's that really emotional scene with um, Primal and uh, Air Razor, played by Michelle Yo, That's really good, but you, there's only so much impact that can have when you're only spending a very minute amount of time on it and you're spending the larger majority of the time on the humans. Mm. So. Well, well, I actually really enjoyed the human characters. I, and, and the sense of what I really liked, they didn't try shoehorn in the romance, which was mm-hmm. good. Um, I thought they were really funny. I like the fact that, you know, this is the first Transformers where there hasn't been a white person um, mm-hmm. in the lead. And actually, the you know, even throughout it, they're only in peripheral, like in very small, tiny roles. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the fact that, um, you know, I mean, uh, it felt like a New York story where it's set in a city. I mean, I know they go to Peru, but like, you know, that, that kind of city scape rather than a suburban, you know what I mean? Or suburban, mm-hmm. whatever. I feel like this was really great. That it was kind of had this like, very specific 90s culture characters and humans that I believed. Um, what did you guys make of those? And also, additionally, like the voice, because of the expanding of the voice roles, of course. I mean, I heard Beat Davidson 
he annoys me, but he did deliver some quite funny lines. Like, uh, you know, everyone's going to remember, you've been inside me, dude. And I was mm. like, wow, I feel like I relate to that line because I've definitely said that to an ex <laughs> who has not been treating me right. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, uh, listeners, when it comes to recognizing voices, Hannah Flint is very, very good. Uh, <laughs> there are a couple of times you lean over to it's like that, is that it's like oh yeah you're right and I I I completely not got it and oh it was it. the one there was Pete Davidson but then it was also uh, Danny me. Rojas yeah he was like that's I was like she's in live action I was like that is Miles Morales's mum <laughs> and you were oh, like oh, 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 that one too Nuno, yeah. Nuno Lauren Velez Ooh. and then Will Jack in this is Danny Rojas from Ted Lasso yes I did get that one as well yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was very impressed. I was very impressed. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I liked Anthony Ramos and Dominic Fishback in this. Um, I thought they were a lot of fun. I thought that they did a good job of bringing nuance to their characters in small moments that really made, helped you understand why they were making the choices they're making, why they decided to join the fight, who they were fighting for, who they would think who was in their thoughts as they, as they chose to make their decisions. They have that connection Anthony Ramos' character with his little brother, uh, which I think, for the most part, works well. Uh, there's a couple of times where they probably need to take that a little bit too far, and it's a little bit unnecessary, and a little bit... It, it, it goes over the line in terms of cheesiness. But for the most part, I, I, I liked what they were doing there, too. See, I love that about this franchise. It's mm. so cheesy. Yeah. It's like we were cheering at the cheesiness, weren't we? We were, we were, we were very much that like, every time that happened. Um, Clarice, um, I kind of well, I want to get into you about. You said you wanted to get to the action part of it, so tell me what you thought about the actions. Tell me about the zoomies. <laughs> I to so the end that they're in they're in Peru, yeah, but they're also in Mount Doom and they're fighting. <laughs> I am Sauron, and it's a big portal in the sky, but also he's Iron Man. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't, again, didn't know what the fuck was going on, and and they just that. roll around Machu Picchu and destroy it, and this, this movie was very disrespectful to history. <laughs> if <laughs> Which you're coming to one... a Transformers movie for historical accuracy, oh, then you, that, look, that, that, you that's like a mistake right You like this movie because you like Transformers. I like hi- ancient history, so that was the part I wanted to enjoy, and it wasn't very good, <laughs> because she found this, like, statue of Horus and she was like it can't be from the Nubian Empire because it's from 5000 BC and they didn't have contact with Egyptians then and it's like it's a fucking 5000 BC was like the near I think it was the Neolithic period there was no Horus what the fuck are you talking about woman (laughs) (laughs) I just feel like why don't they just google stuff before they write things (laughs) I don't understand and when she's like going through the museum and she's pointing and she's like well that Van Hock is obviously fake because it's in the National Gallery in London and it's like nobody is that stupid to think that that painting was real like could they not just do one Google I beg of you (laughs) sorry that wasn't about the action but they couldn't it was the 90s no but like the people who worked at the museum I know they were meant to be stupid but there's like levels Mm. of stupidity you know (laughs) I think it was Matt it was doing the point of basically 
white women taking like credit yeah, for that. I know I'm being nitpicky, but yeah. I was really trying to cling to things that I understood. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I really liked the actor sequence at the end, even though it was so derivative in so many ways. But like one of the things I realized is a bit in it were like Optimus Primal is like, he's like great. And he says, and then he transforms. And all I can think about is like, why didn't his uh, mate do that in the beginning? There's a whole thing in the beginning, but I was like, if you could do that, why were you not bringing out the big guns against the person in the beginning? But yeah. I actually thought some of those, those sequences, it kind of reminded me of Dungeons and Dragons. You know that bit was quite seamless in the way we kind of got through, like, through like we kind of went from one person's perspective of fight and then kind of brings on that, that fluidity mm-hmm. of like action, which yeah. I, I thought it was really fun. And, you know, and also just the cheesiness at the end where, you know, there's that kind of moment like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, do it. <laughs> Me and Hala were having the absolute best I time. I think we had, we, I think we were like having the best time of anyone in that theater. We were like going, yes, do it. That's the bit where we just to show you the real power of the prime. When they were like, then when it was like Autobots, Maximals, and we were like, roll out. It was like roll out. And then the needle drops. The needle drops. Oh my god. Oh, don't go to come back. The, the the moment that Bumblebee has in the final act is so awesome. Oh my god. Awesome. It's and so even, Yeah, yeah. There's some little quotes that they use. I was like, did he just say that? And I'm like, yeah, he did. Optimus <laughs> <laughs> oh. has some great one-liners. He has that line sort of on, on, on the road when he sort of stops to fight Scourge. He's like, first I'm going to take Scourge's key. And then I'm gonna take off his head. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> and, and it's like, always I, I, so I, I, funny how much they rip to shreds the Autobots, and we see that we see them absolutely. But then, when any time a human like gets injured, it's like we don't show that. <laughs> no blood. <laughs> Keep that 12A rating, whatever it is. Yeah, I love. I mean, Optimus Prime is my favorite character uh, in this, and it's it's really cool to hear Peter Peter Cullen, who's just so irreplaceable in that role, uh, still prove why that's the case uh, in this film i thought he was great um and i love that this film does give prime a little bit more focus than what he has than what he has had previously um i feel like he always gets focused also i want to see more about this ducati bird (laughs) (laughs) i also was thinking when i was leaving it i was like how do they so like how do they procreate because they've got gendered bots. do they fuck okay this i this is why one of the jokes annoyed me because the the Pete Dave Mirage what? Pete Davidson like throws a thing at Anthony Ramos and he's like don't ask me what part of my body that came from yeah. which presumably means dick but he doesn't have a dick so where would it where from his body would it come from but that I think be like oh my he's god he's making gross. a joke because he's so embedded in human culture pop culture um, that he's right. making that that's why he th- okay yeah. that's that's not why because my... he keeps on fucking talking that's about not my all sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my type of humor i do yeah. have a question mm-hmm. amon <laughs> oh, God. you are the master of consequences consequences <laughs> okay, and i was I'm... watching this being like and i could tell that you're really enjoying it and i was like <laughs> but that's this this isn't fair because <laughs> amon always says there has to be consequences and there were no fucking consequences in this movie <laughs> is it different because they're robots and it doesn't matter because they're not people. Well, okay. I'm so glad you brought this up. Um, <laughs> I almost feel like uh, anybody listening to this, if you are wanting to see Transformers, you might get into a little bit of spoiler territory here. Uh, but I do want to get into this because it's a very, very good question. Clarice, I completely agree with you in that death 
is not treated the way it should be treated in this film although i do like that the one death which sticks you do absolutely feel it and is probably the film's most emotional moment which is when yeah razor Razor. when maxwell has to kill his friend oh come on I'm no getting on to Peter Sorry. about you. No, but, but it's not a real bird. It's not a bird. Oh, oh wow, well, not a real wow. bird. Oh, wow, wow. It's just a robot. You know what that is? It's That's just racist. A robot. It's just a robot. I'm like Din Djarin. I'm going in kicking the droids. I don't give a shit. All right, all right. Else. I'm going to I'm gonna wrap this. Sorry, well, well, sorry, well, sorry. Well, I, 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 I genuinely forgot who died. I'm really sorry. I do want to ask a question, though, because... And now I'm about to piss off both Clarice and Hannah because I'm going to say that this film was more of a satisfying, fun time to me than Fast X. And it's so interesting. Good for you. (laughs) But it's so interesting reading the critical discourse for this film. Like, people are going, like, one star, awful, you know, typical sort of stuff that you'd see in the Tyrannical Transformers release. But it feels like a lot of the same issues that they are harping on with Transformers in terms of lack of consequences, in terms of continuity issues, is stuff which gets a pass when people are talking about Fast X. Because if you're talking about death and Fast X, then you know, that death doesn't matter in those movies. I mean, it, it, even, at least with Transformers, when super strength is used, it's, it makes sense because they are really huge Autobot sentient. Dom is now able to flip cars with one, with one arm. When did that happen? <laughs> I can sense. tell you so... what the difference is. <laughs> okay. Because Fast and Furious is fun and wants to be fun and doesn't take itself seriously. Transformers is wanting me to actually pay attention to this shit about keys and assholes mm. in the sky and like I think it doesn't have the joy I think Bumblebee had a bit of that. But mm. for me what's missing from Transformers is like just like they're toys. Irreverence. Irreverence. Yeah, they're toys. Like, they are toys. I will say, I will say, I think with Transformers, especially this one, it felt like a mashup of so many different franchises and trying to, like, I don't know, like, um, like, algorithm (laughs) a sort of film. (laughs) Like, we're going to have a bit of Indiana Jones. We're going to have a bit of, like, Justice League. We're going to have a bit of, like, um, um, MCU in here. You know what I mean? Mm. It's, like, that sort of kind of vibe mm. where it feel yeah. So it's it doesn't, there's a lack, of, and at this point in time, but I think there's, in a way, there's enough about it that kind of you just accept for what it is, that I don't really mind it. Like, the things that were cheesy, I feel like I was laughing at it more than laughing with it, though, sometimes. I will say that. Mm. I just, with, with that final act especially, it felt like I was, you know, back watching you know, Saturday morning cartoons, uh, watching Beast Wars and watching the early Transformers cartoons. It just felt so much better. But, but you know what? But you know what? You know, I was saying to you before, like, watching Mad About the Boy and the Noel Coward document, and I know I'm about to trans- compare Noel Cowards <laughs> <laughs> to Transformers, but there's a bit in the documentary where he talks about, like, how the sensibilities were changing, people were really into, like, uh, John Osborne kitchen sink realist plays like Don't Look Back in Anger and all this stuff like that and it's like and his stuff that was a drawing room upper class comedies that weren't really politically motivated at all was suddenly getting like a drum in by, by the critics and there's a quote in it where it says I'd rather have bad notices and run for a year and I feel like maybe that's the point it's like some things that don't have to aren't too taxing to audiences the kind of audiences who just want to go in 
can like can just let it wash over them, enjoy the big bangs, enjoy a few laughs, whatever, enjoy seeing some of their favorite actors doing all these things, can have a bit of a nostalgia like hit. That works. And also for kids, it works, right? So I feel like assessing it within the parameters of like that sort of franchise entertainment mm-hmm. bubble, it's it's perfect perfectly serviceable. Um but um yeah, I don't know, it's interesting, isn't it? But um mm-hmm. But again, this is subjectivity. We all have a different taste. And you're a massive Transformers fan. So, of course, you're going to have, like, um, you're going to find it far more. It's like, watch me for watching Super Mario Brothers than Super Mario Bros. movies. As, as someone who, like, loves Wayne Mario and stuff, there was so much about it that was, like, such fan service. I was like, I am that fan. And I have been served. <laughs> okay. Um, let's wrap it up, though. Um, so, screen, stream, or skip. Clarice. You say people don't want taxing. They, it taxed me greatly. <laughs> um, and I get it's just me, how my brain works. It was too much information. No like. Skip. <laughs> uh, Amon? I think you should screen this movie. Yeah, I'll screen two. Okay, so from Murdering Some... Animorphic robots <laughs> to murdering and some hairdressers. It's murder on the salon floor with Medusa Deluxe. You don't know what it's like losing your hair. You might as well be dead. There could be a serial killer on the loose. It's a hairdressing competition. <laughs> did you kill him? How do they even know it's murder? Someone scalped him. Was you right? All right. No. It's murder on the silent floor. We better not kill the groove. DJ, gonna burn this goddamn house right down. Oh, Sophia is Baxter. I saw her the other week. I might hoop Really? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't that great. I enjoyed Khalees more and Liberty X. <laughs> Khalees sorry, long, sorry, long-time listener, Sophie Ellis-Betzer. <laughs> <laughs> who is apparently dating Bill Murray. Weird headline. Um, but apparently that's the thing. Um, anyway, after a stylist what? described... What? A... I don't get it. What did you say? You said you said Khalees, right? Yeah, I enjoy Khalees more. Khalees is dating Bill Murray. Yeah. Supposedly. <laughs> what? <laughs> exactly! <laughs> <laughs> that's like... <laughs> Insane! I am aware, yes. I think I need a moment to process. Uh, Listeners, I wish you could see Hannah Flitt's face right now. You carry on and I'll just like... (laughs) After a stylist is found dead, the remaining competitors try to uncover the killer over the course of an evening. Rivalry and mistrust build as the remaining group of determined contestants suspect that someone may be trying to rig the competition by gruesomely picking off its entrance. This is written and directed by Thomas Hardman, and it stars Claire Perkins, Anita Joy Uwaje, Kayla Meikle, Kay Alexander, Harriet Webb, Daryl De Silva, and Luke Pasqualino. So I think one of the cool things about this film that I think they do really well is that it's all more or less shot in one take. Uh, how did you find the conceit of that? Was it distracting or did you appreciate the craft, Hannah? Oh, I love a one take. Mm. I think actually when it's done really well, I mean, the last time I saw it done that well was Pointing Point, uh, the mm. kitchen 
uh, another British film, the the restaurant set drama with Stephen Graham. I thought that was just brilliantly executed. And I think um, what I really liked about not just and then the, the 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 cinematographer Robbie Ryan, I want to say, yeah, um, he's like done he did the favorite. Yes, he Oscar nominated favorite. And like what I really loved about the cinematography in this, it was it was like not just the camera work but the lighting. There's this really amazing moment where you know because what i like about the setting of it is like in the back you never really get into the main room it's all it's like the, where the the least glamorous part of this what's supposed to be a very glamorous event about showcasing hair and i love that there's this moment where one of the characters called divine meets like one of the security guards and then there's this sudden brilliance but where they up bring the light out uh, above and it just like creates this amazing kind of like heavenly glow and then it shifts around it moves to the side there's so many moments of that where the lighting this is just perfect and it adds this kind of like very I don't know it's like seedy um quite like smoky there's like so atmospheric um which yeah I think it really added to the kind of intrigue the kind of uh parent slight paranoia but also the kind of humor with inherent in the script that was very funny throughout despite the circumstances i mean certainly when i think about british hairdressing uh hairdressers on screen i think of blow dry um <laughs> with alan rickman which is also about a competition but that's set in like north of england and it's got josh hartnett doing a terrible terrible yorkshire <laughs> accent uh with rachel lee cooking it and it's got you know um what's her name oh my god who's in muriel's wedding uh she was in brothers and sisters she, um, Rachel, oh, what's her name? Rachel Griffiths, I want to say. Do you know her? She was in Muse. She's like Australian actress. And it's also one of the last, you know, Natasha Richardson, RIP, who was also in it. So good. And then I think of Cutting It, which is another mm -hmm. classic. So for me, seeing this film, I was like, finally, we've got a really, it kind of has that like, inside number, inside number 10. You know, that kind of like League of Gentlemen sort of like feel as well. This like the feel of it, like Ben Wheatley a little bit. I loved it. I loved it, yeah. Me too. I thought it worked really, really well. Um, it's interesting, Clarice. This film is a whodunit. But normally in a whodunit, you have like a detective, like a Poirot or a Sherlock rooting around trying to figure out who the killer is. This film doesn't have a figure like that. How do you feel that affected the plot and how the story played out and did that work for you? Because we're the detective. That's what I liked about it, is that mm. the viewer is you know implanted into the position of like we have to observe and document and calculate in our own heads because and that combines with the one take aspect of it is that it's weaving in and out through all these conversations and you're getting little snippets of information and you're going oh okay this oh this person has a history with this individual oh that that might mean that there's some resentment there and, and you're trying to like calculate it all as the movie goes by and there's no real um you know, there's no real, like, Poirot in the drawing room where he lays out, like, all the clues um, for the audience and for himself. Like, it's very, uh, like, mature in, in that way. It really trusts the audience to be smart enough to sort of figure out what's going on on their own. Uh, so I really, it was really fun. Um, and I liked how, I liked how all the characters were quite spiteful but in gentle ways mm. if that makes sense <laughs> yeah agreed agreed uh, I would be remiss not to talk about the wigs uh, in this film <laughs> uh, what 
did you make of not only the the costumes but that world and how they brought it to life with all the wigs and the costume? I thought it was really really. You know what? You know what is also funny. One of my, I mean, I have a kind of slight relationship with like hair competitions because one of my, one of my, my when I was a childhood best friend, Heather, she when when she, we finished like when she went, when I went sixth form, she went started training at Tony and Guy as a hairdresser. So I remember going to like Manchester and being her hair model for like something. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So watching that was really interesting. But like, no, the the wigs are amazing, and I think again, it's that I loved what, and again, you know, why I mentioned that thing is like there's this idea of like I, I love the wigs and what they said about the person who was styling the wigs right you know there's a character in it cleave and i think she's one of my fa- she's like one of my favorite characters in the film because um you know she has this like this real artistic vision like she has it but she works at you know might work at a salon like on the high street you know and she people discount people who don't have you know are not doing like highbrow fashion shoot magazines but there is this sense that like hair is like is is just like as as much of a i love the passion she has for it and that's like basically comes out in the styles and it matches that but also the ridiculousness in the situations like you know she's got a ship in the head which kind of reminded me like isn't there like um isn't in is it in um Marie Antoinette, where she has a ship in the head? Or is there a wig? Yeah, it's in like an 18th century court thing that occasionally yeah. you like put objects in the top of the wig. And right. Absolutely ridiculous. Right. And the way she kept on like passionately talking about that and, you know, the other hairdos as well, which is like, it was just all looked like phenomenal to me and what they were trying to say. And there's a real, what was clear in the writing for, is, it, is his name Thomas Hardiman, I want to say? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the clear in the right writing a real deep affection for these people, these people who care so much about what they do, where it's not just hair. You know, I love that. There's a really great bit in like Fleabag, <laughs> where she, you know, she gets the terrible. She get Claire gets the terrible hair bit. So like, I hit like Fleabag. a pencil. Yeah, and it's like it's like no, no Claire. I gave you exactly one. It's like it's just hair. It's like no it's not anthony it's not just hair we know that and it's like hair isn't just that hair is like an extension it says so much and i think there's this real defection but what you said clarice as well like about um the spitefulness and the gossipy i really love that that was transposed because you know when you go to like a hair salon there is a lot of chat especially in certain salons like set with barbershops you know we've seen that kind of kind of culture come up and like what goes down it's his own little like community and stuff and you can definitely feel this like very ingrained, like entrenched like relationships where they, everyone knows each other's business and people one minute by saying, you look great. And the next is like, that's fucking ugly. You know what I mean? Like that mm. sort of situation, which yeah, I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Claire, played by Claire Perkins, definitely the standout for me. Louise, was there any other performance that you really took notice of? Oh, I'm trying to think because Claire Perkins was also the standout for me. <laughs> um, let's talk, let's so talk more great. about Claire Perkins then. What, what, was it, what was it about her performance that really worked for you? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of echoing what Hannah said, this idea of... I, I really like this movie as a justification of her dressing as art, like equivalent not just to like other kinds of high fashion, but you know, like painting and, and music. And there's this, there is something she says early on about how like, yeah, I didn't get a degree. So like, this is the way that I can create art because it is one of the avenues mm-hmm. 
that is sort of less closed off and less institutionalized and less like elitist. Um, and so I, I really love how she kind of, I don't know, like Claire Perkins kind of mixes in something that's quite dreamy and ambitious and like very grand visions with also the thing with being a hairdresser is having to be kind of like, <laughs> I was going to say an emotional manipulator, but you know, you're always like having to, I mean, I don't really go to the hairdresser, but they're always like talking at the client and trying to make the client happy. And you're just such a people pleaser all the time. And you have to be different people to different clients and I think you could really get that in her performance as well that she was there is a part of herself that she was hiding from certain individuals um but I think all the actors sort of had that element there's a sense that she's like you know the day job is serving other people's visions whereas this it gives her a chance to serve her own um and definitely the sense of of what I really liked is like the anger and not in the typical like you know this isn't just like the angry black woman, angry black woman trope. It's someone where it's just actually built out and nuanced and actually showing, oh, I get it, why she's like that. And certainly as that character journey goes on, I really like the kind of like uh, culmination of that. Um, my, my, my one criticism, and it's not that I really didn't like his performance as Angel, uh, Luke Pasqualino, but there is something about getting a straight actor to do an overtly camp gay guy, which kind of at this point in where we are now, it feels like a little bit maybe, I don't know, I didn't. Yeah. Mm. But there was also the um, the character plays the actor plays Gak, who is a security guard. I thought he did a really, really, really good job. I um, definitely got that sense of like <laughs> this guy going, going quite. Uh, deranged. Um, I thought that was really well well handled, performed, and I, you know, again, I think it was an ensemble cast performance, though. So, hundred percent, hundred percent. And on that note, it's time for our screen stream or skip a recommendation on Medusa Deluxe. Clarice, uh, screen. It was not taxing whatsoever. Yeah, screen for me. My movie of the week. Oh yeah, my movie of the week too. It's my movie of the week. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what? It is also my movie of the week. Uh, Even though I love me some Optimus Prime, I love me this movie more. Screen from me. Um, We are not done talking about wigs, ladies and gentlemen, because it's time for our next film, Chevalier. I realized the more I exiled, the less I was alone. Were you always so competitive? The show-off who spoiled Mozart's concert. May I play with you, monsieur? Well, I hope this won't be embarrassing for you. Who the hell is that? de la patrie, le jour de gloire est arrivé. Contre nous de la tyrannie, l'entendant sanglant élevé. I thought you were going to do like, do you hear the people sing, sing in their voice or whatever it is. I could have done that, but that's the real version of this. And also that's not, that wasn't the French Revolution. Using my keen detective skills, I'm going to say that's the French national anthem. It is, it is. 
I like it. Do you know what it is in English? It's really like... (laughs) The lyrics are like, we're going to use the blood of our enemies to uh, fertilize our fields, bitch. Wow. Wow. That's intense. It is the greatest national anthem ever written. Um, And I used it because it predated the French Revolution, but it became quite popular during the French Revolution. And Mm. that is thematically what this movie is partially about, except it doesn't actually, it cuts off before the fun part. (laughs) Yeah, we will get into that in just a little bit. But before that, uh, let's set it up. Chevalier, uh, inspired by the incredible story of composer Joseph Bologna, a.k.a. Chevalier de St. George, the illegitimate son of an African slave and a French plantation owner, Bologna rises to improbable heights in French society. As a celebrated violinist, composer and fencer, complete with an ill-fated love affair and a falling out with Marie Antoinette herself and her court. This is directed by Stephen Williams and written by Stephanie Robinson and it stars Kelvin Harrison Jr., Samara Weaving, Lucy Boynton, Martin Sokus, Alex Fitzalan and Minnie Driver. Uh, And as we teed up at the start of this show, I spoke to Kelvin Harrison Jr., uh, who is a really, really impressive actor. I don't think I've watched the film and seen him give a bad performance. He always, always brings it, and I think he does it again here. This is a really, really interesting chat. We talked about this dedication to his craft to actually learn fencing and actually learn the violin. Uh, that was really, really interesting. We talked about how, in many respects, this is about a black man in a white man's world, and how true that is of Hollywood, even though obviously many years apart. Uh, and we got into a couple other things too. Uh, so here's that chat, me and Calvin Harrison Jr. Enjoy. Welcome to the Faith Black Podcast, Calvin. How are you? Hey, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, big fan. So this is a treat for me. Thank you for taking the time. And congratulations on your performance in Chevalier. I, I thought it was fantastic. Oh, I appreciate you, man. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to start off with the big questions, so prepare yourself. Oh, oh. Did you like opera before taking on this role? Hell no, just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, did I like opera? Um, you know what's really funny? I actually did an opera once in high school. Oh, wow. And uh, it was really difficult, but it was kind of fun. Like, yeah, it was really, it was just fun just to see what the voice is capable of. And there's something about when you're, when you so because I played the trumpet, I played a wind instrument and you understand breath support. And I think with actors, I think that actually kind of prepared me because I wasn't acting at the time, really. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it changes um, the, the, the um, how present you are with your emotions and in and, and, and a moment when you're breathing. So something about opera really, I don't know, there's something really just raw about it because you're, you're, you get the proper breath support. Yeah. Has your view on it changed now to the degree where you can see yourself going to check out operas more often after doing this film? Or I did see a couple operas afterwards. I don't remember the names of them, (laughs) but I don't remember names of anything. But um, (laughs) I did go to check out a couple um, after the movie was done, and we went to go see a lot of them while we were in Prague as well. It was it was it was kind of fun. You don't really know what they're talking about, um, (laughs) but it's nice to just uh, it's nice to just listen, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what did you uncover in your research into Chevalier, into Joseph Ballone, that you really wanted to bring into your performance? Um, I think 
you know, Stephen and I wanted to identify some of the same things so we can make sure we were building um building a character that felt um grounded and consistent. And um in the research, we we both discovered, you know, that they they just they described him as a bit flamboyant and he was um kind of cocky and um a ladies' man, you know, just a man about town and just a dancer and a partier and a hard worker. So I think we wanted to just implement all those different elements into Joseph's arsenal of personality traits. And then we also used the comp of Prince because Stephen really wanted to make the movie feel modern in some ways and contemporary. Mm-hmm. And if Joseph was described as this kind of like rock star of the moment, then who would who is the rock star of our time, our day and age that fit those characteristics and Prince fit the bill. So yeah, it was a little bit of this, a little bit of that. <laughs> I like that. Did you watch any Prince videos in order to help with that? Or were you oh, like a big fan? <laughs> I watched Purple Rain. I watched all his music videos. I watched, I used to watch these compilations of Prince just being petty. And <laughs> I would just like, just study his face. And then I would mean, and my team would kind of find these like videos of just like Prince walking to interviews or Prince sitting down or Prince um, eating or Prince rolling his you know, just all these little things that Prince would do. And then I would kind of take them and find moments to see. We'd work with the movement coach, Polly Bennett, and the etiquette coach. And we would kind of start to see what was the vocabulary we wanted to use that we stole from Prince, that we also wanted to use period-wise, um, that would serve Joseph in our storytelling. Mm. Oh, I love that. I might have to go and watch some Prince videos and do a comp myself. Uh, that's, oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So did you have more nerves doing Serrano where you're retelling the story that many people knew? Or did you have more nerves doing this when you're bringing a real life person who many who not many people know today to life? Which which one which one was more nerve wracking for you, if anything? Um, I think they were equally as nerve wracking. I think it was like, you know, I personally don't think about so much about the audience reaction to these characters. I'm never Anytime I'm taking on a role, I kind of immediately um, kind of go, okay, everyone looks at this person as iconic or a legend. And I'm kind of like, I'm just invested in the man. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's more so what is required to tell the truth that is a little bit daunting to me. So with Cyrano, it was like, okay, how am I going to convincingly um, just find, it was more so about the comedic elements in Cyrano and also making sure I was protecting Christian and him being now being portrayed as a black man for the first time, that was the challenge for me. And that made me a little nervous um, And to make sure he didn't feel like he was not as sophisticated just because of what he looked like, but more so because of the fact that he just came from a different background um, and wasn't interested in poetry. And I think with Joseph, it was more so like, how am I going to pull off the fact that this man is a virtuoso of sword and bow? I was like, that's time consuming. And I really tried to get out of doing it. <laughs> I was like, can we just get a double or something and do some like movie magic? And Steven said, hell no. Um, so I uh, I definitely uh, had my work cut out for me. And, you know, you just want to tell the truth. Yeah, absolutely. Well, to that point, that actually brings up a question I wanted to ask. Has there been anything in roles where you've done previously where you haven't felt the need to actually learn the thing? Um, because I see you sort of in a uh, film like this, even in a film, film like Waves, you actually, you're the one 
on the mat, doing the wrestling, doing the violin, doing the sword. Is, is there any sort of role, any time where you're like, you know what, I can just, I can, I can act that. I don't need to fully know what I'm doing this moment. Or do you always take the time and the opportunity to learn the thing when the opportunity presents itself? I think that I will change as an actor over time. I don't know if I'll always be like this, but I think as a young actor, I think it's important to demonstrate a hustle. I think it's important to demonstrate work ethic. And I think it's important to demonstrate how committed you can be to a character to allow the audience know and also directors know that, you know, if they wanted this from you, you can do it. Um, and, and you know, also to honor certain stories. I think if 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 the role didn't require it and the director wasn't adamant about it, or if I felt like there were other ways around it, maybe I can save some time and some energy and some gray hairs by mm-hmm. just, you know, doing some acting. But I think I'm young right now. I, I'm I'm excited about the opportunities. I think I'm curious and it's fun to take on new hobbies for every movie. So right now it's enjoyable. Later in my life, I might go, I, I'm too old for this shit. <laughs> 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 that is fair play I don't think any director will put you yet <laughs> at all um, <laughs> when it comes to because I've, I've read that you, you trained six months with the violin uh, for this role is there a day where that training goes from being grueling to being fun um, when you're making progress you know when you're like wow I can really hear the song and wow I'm, I'm not just like playing the notes anymore but I'm I'm applying emotion to it. I'm applying storytelling. There's a sensitivity in this note, or there's a abruptness in this note, or I'm cutting you off in this this moment. When it's like with acting, there's one thing when you learn the lines and you're just regurgitating the words, and there's another thing when you're present and you're allowing uh, the audience or whoever or your scene partner to get a little bit of an insight into what's going on with you and your in your psyche. What's what, what's your private space. Um, that intimacy in, in a song is, is 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 exciting. And when you're achieving that, I don't know, it just gives you goosebumps. And there was a lot of celebra- celebratory moments in, in the rehearsal process where we were like, wow, I'm becoming an artist. And I'm not just like a, 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 um, a little soldier that's just out here just mimicking what it looks like to play a violin. I'm, I'm, I'm playing and I'm, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm an artist. And it, 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 that's really, um, it's really encouraging. Yeah. And it all leads to that incredible opening sequence of this film, uh, which yeah, I've seen the film twice now. That first scene wow, makes me want to clap. Um, and yeah, was that big opening scene? Was that something that you had circled in your diary, or did that come early and or later in the shoot for you? Oh, you know, I think originally, I think it was pretty early in the schedule, but then I, I fractured my collarbone for oh, wow. um, process before we started shooting. So we had to push the schedule back and move some things around. And we started with, um, we ended up starting with a lot of the dramatic scenes inside the apartment. Um, and then they pushed the Mozart stuff to last. Um, so I had time, which was, you know, time is always our friend. Um, and Time became my biggest ally, so um, I, I had to. I got a little bit more opportunity to work with the movement coach and the choreographer and Steven to really craft that sequence um, so that it feels just like we imagine it off the page, but also still very period appropriate in some ways, mm-hmm. um, but exciting and and spontaneous and and just like it should be a sexy moment for Joseph, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to ask, is that? rehearsed improvisation that you're doing or did you or, or, or did you not even know what you were going to do exactly music wise when you were on that stage doing your thing 
Oh, I mean, Michael Abels was very clear from the get-go. I mean, I got that track. That was the first track I ever got. Michael Abels picked it out on the piano, um, his composition of the Mozart duel. So there was um there was a there was a um a, a piece that was written, and all I had to do was learn the piece and perform it accurately. Um, but then there's finesse in it, you know what I mean? It's like how far how far can you go with how you demonstrate that? And and the actor's job too is, you know, what I learned when with growing up with my father with music was um if you don't have anything to say don't say anything at all so it has to be a conversation especially when things are supposed to be improvisational and that's what that scene was about it felt like they were riffing with the condensers so it was supposed to get us I needed to get into Michael Abel's head in terms of what he wanted to communicate between Joseph and, and Mozart and then also the actor that played Mozart and I had to have our own language so we would write out of of, of um language that would match the musical language from every line that we played to make sure we were having a conversation that the audience could feel this really feel this battle in a visceral way battle in a visceral way yeah mission accomplished it's i love that scene so much um <laughs> i know that you obviously did a ton of research read all of the books but if you could actually sit down with joseph and ask him about any one scene in this movie what would it be and why Ooh. I would ask him about his relationship to with his dad. You know, early in the film, we see that he gets a letter from his father. And, um, you know, there were a lot of different versions of that particular moment of how to react to that particular letter. Mm. And ultimately, I decided to kind of almost laugh it off, you know, and kind of be like, it's almost laughable when you're like, when, when, when a relationship is as complicated as theirs was. But I think I would want to know from him how he how he actually felt about his dad. Did he ever process that relationship, given what his dad, you know, did to his mother in order for him to be conceived and why his father would even want to take him and bring him to Paris and give him these opportunities, considering what he stood for? What 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 is that for him? You know, I think that's that would be my I want to know how he interpreted it all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I want to know too. Yeah. <laughs> Last couple of questions for you before I let you go. Um, you know, a lot of this film concerns black excellence in the white man's world. And yeah. you've been in Hollywood for a while now. Hollywood is still very much uh, white men led. Uh, yeah. Are there any similarities between then uh, and now, now that you've sort of walked the mile in Joseph's shoes? Can you, can you see the similarities between yourself or and if, if anything? I mean, I, I think my whole career has kind of felt like Joseph's in, in some way, and not in the sense that like I'm some brilliant virtuoso, but in the sense that I, I find that it's very transactional, you know? It's very much like, um, what do you offer us? And if you offer us something that changes our economic um, um, positioning in, in this business, it's a business first and foremost, then we will give you more or less more opportunity, but not not too much on it because at the end of the day, not every market is interested in your experience because of the history and the years of um, changing and poisoning the minds of, of, of humanity to believe that Black people are lesser or not as interesting or not as dynamic or as savages. Um, and, and what I found interesting about this movie was in the research, I really want to understand how trade worked and 
what how you know how they were able to convince the people at the time which was slavery was still very a new thing even in this era mm-hmm. and it was still coming back to the economics of it all they were trying to just brainwash everyone into believing that these people were you know black people were disgusting or lesser than simply because it helped them um justify without feeling bad about making them into slaves to get more labor to to have more resources to make more money and that effect that 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 um those lies that manipulation that gaslighting has led led all the way into like present day and and our experiences and it still exists in the economics of hollywood Mm -hmm. so you know that's a long-winded answer of being like yes <laughs> people be <Yeah>. wilding <laughs> yes they be yes they be and a final question for you um the lion king the original lion king is a film very close to my heart i consider it still be the best animated film of all time it's one of my favorite films of all time and of course you are scar in barry jenkins's lion king prequel uh which i'm very excited about what can we expect from that movie that's such a good sentence. Barry Jenkins. We love that man. He's so talented. And then Lion King. We love that movie. Mm-hmm. And Scar, it should be everybody's favorite character. If you're a fan of Mufasa, then we need got we got beef already. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the movie's gonna be so sick. I, I you know, I was skeptical for a second simply because, you know, it's such a classic, it's so beloved, it's so hard to take something like that and have a fresh take on it. But I think they really did something really cool. And, you know, we've been working on it for the last couple of years. And every time I go in, I see new visuals and it's beautiful. And Barry's, Barry's you know, just intimate take on life is is really bleeding through this wonderful um, animation film. And it's nice to be able to get to know these two guys like Sara Mufasa in a way that we haven't been able to before. So um, I, I genuinely think people are going to really pop off of this one. But, you know, that's just me. I'm biased. Well, I'm I'm a Mufasa fan, so we are beefing. Um, oh, we beefing! <laughs> we beefing big time. The interview is over. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> I'm still looking forward to your performance. As as I told a few friends of mine when I told them that I was uh, getting my interview, you always bring it. All the best to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Like this has been fun. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. So, I don't know about you guys, but the first scene of this movie is freaking awesome. <laughs> and I was really into it from that point on. Like, it was really one of the best openings to a film I've seen in quite some time. What did you make of the music, that opening scene, and what they're doing with the dueling opera plot here, which takes um, is a large focus of this film? I really enjoyed that opening scene, um, but I do feel like it was a bit of a bait and switch because after that, it just became this very conventional biographical picture, which um, kind of has like two conflicts going on at the same time. And those are ones that just felt like typical biography ter- ter- uh, territory. You know, there's a, like a love triangle going on. Um, you know, the kind of competition about something to achieve, achieve something when for me, the most, (coughs) sorry, (coughs) 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 you good? It's just got, it's like a little tickle in the throat. For me, what I was most interested in was this idea of being outsider 
as someone who's a mixed person, he's a black mm-hmm. mixed race man, of being stuck within a world that won't accept him, but also being an outsider in his own, um, his, his heritage through his mother's side by being part of that part of that world and not being part of his mother's, the, comp, the kind of tension, friction between him and his mother, who was a slave and who was an enslaved woman. She comes and I felt like that's, that's for me the central conflict but it kind of instead, and of course this is kind of based on a true story, instead it feels like, oh, we've got to throw in like a, a forbidden romance with a white woman. And I'm not saying it might not have happened or anything like that, but it did feel a bit like it started off so well and then we got into this really like generic sort of conversation uh, that didn't really, for me, add anything to it. But, you know, I did, you know, there was cert- certainly I enjoyed the acting. I enjoyed the acting and I did like that um, ill-fated love affair story so much as it was there. I just wanted more of the dueling opera stuff. I thought that was so well done and it leaned into the talent that Chevalier de St. George was. And I didn't know about this guy prior to this film. It's such an interesting character, an interesting story. Um <laughs> And when they really dug into his creativity and his skill set, I thought that was where the film was strongest. Um, Clarice, what did you feel of how the story played out? And was there anything beyond the opening scene that really worked for you? Well, I think it's interesting you you said his skill set, because I, I sort of slightly disagree in the mm. sense that look i really shot myself in the foot this week because i rewatched amadeus um, <laughs> and that is one of my favorite movies obviously about mozart who was is the guy that he's dueling in mm-hmm. the first scene mm-hmm. they actually probably didn't meet but i, I don't mind it's fun anachronism mm. um and what amadeus does so beautifully through salieri's speeches is to express what was genius about mozart's music and he's describing it going how the fuck did this idiot guy come up with these melodies that start so simple and then they build into something like overwhelming that it feels like god's voice and that i was watching it realizing oh my god that was the thing i was sort of missing from chevalier is that i had like vaguely heard of joseph bologna but I didn't know anything about his music and what the quality of it was. Why was it so genius? Why was it so beautiful? And the movie didn't even, I think for me, differentiate what the music in the movie was his, right? Like, I don't know what I was listening to (laughs) and whether any of it was actually his real uh, compositions. And I think that comes from, like, what Hannah was saying about this very, like, standard biopic approach that it was so invested in like the actions of his life this love affair this trying to get in the opera that I would have loved to have seen just more scenes about like his quality as an artist because mm. they do that a little bit at the end where but then they incorporate certain bit of it where it's like how yeah like, bring it, together. it wasn't like, like totally there but, but it, it wasn't was like, enough oh, time just, on it and again yeah. that yeah I totally agree with you on that bit Speaking of things that there weren't enough time on in this movie, there's a whole, you know, you mentioned the French Revolution, uh, Clarice. Uh, Chevalier has this friend who is very much into that. And in the first 25 minutes or so, we get a little hint of what's going on and how Chevalier feels about that. 
then that plot line is completely forgotten until the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie, which is meant to be the big finish and is meant to, they're banking a lot on how Chevalier feels about the revolution in that moment. And like, for me, it just felt like that plot line wasn't given enough TLC to land the way that the film wanted it to. Uh, what did you think of how they used that interesting plot line or, or didn't use as, as, as I think. As well, I, as he I think. said at the end he was the, he commanded the first black regiment or there was yeah. a, the, he, and I was like, that's so fucking interesting. Why mm. was the movie not about that? Mm-hmm. And there's a slightly weird thing with like, it's not super negative, but like the way that it represents the French revolution, I found quite odd because it was really like making it look, more progressive than I feel like it probably was because there's this idea that like his desires you know to sort of like the anti-racist anti-slavery like impulses of that character and his friend were somehow also like the core ideals of the French Revolution which I'm not an expert but I don't I think it was more like an economic thing and they did abolish slavery during the French Revolution, but I don't know. It just it was. But as it weird. said, Napoleon brought it back. <laughs> yeah. Also that, but it was this thing of like I I don't mind at all anachronistic storytelling, but there was so much of this idea of let's make the French Revolution look so equivalent to like a social movement from yeah. today. And- the where there's like Samara Weaving, yeah, Samara really gets was... on the table and she's like, what yeah, about yeah. women? <laughs> See, this is what annoys me about a film like this, where it's trying to like compare, compare the experience of a black biracial man to a privileged white woman. They're not even on the same level, right? And no. then you don't, and then again, the black woman who was literally was slaved and that like, the way, like, I don't know, this is what, it kind of gets into this kind of like tragic mulatto sort of trope in a way, because it's like, he doesn't, he wants, the way he kind of like, there's a lot of it where it's kind of, he's antagonistic toward his his mother, biological mother. And in a way that thing felt like for me, again, surface level, quite shallow, not really, not really, because it's so many focus about these other things trying to fit this formula that it didn't spend enough time really getting into the nuances and get into the emotional rigor of what it must feel like to have feel like both abandoned by your parents and sense of it, but also living in a society that doesn't actually accept you, that you're like kind of like, you know, anomaly, like all those things are the interesting bit, but it just didn't carry enough weight in this. And they were trying to basically take an intersectional approach and project like modern ideals onto the past. when actually that's not the case, right? I don't know. It's again the heroes villains thing, and it's not getting into the gray areas of that um, in the character building for me. And that's where it kind of again it could have been something really interesting. But so much of these biopics, once again, are about like let's 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 end it right when it gets interesting. <laughs> There's a lot that this film is trying to pack in, and because of that, it moves through things more swiftly than it should. But I still think, even though that's the case, Calvin Harrison Jr. brings so much nuance to the role. Um, there's a, a, a sequence sort of halfway through where he's going through a rough time. And the acting in that moment is exceptional. You know, we've seen him for the large majority of the movie be so confident and be you know, more than a little bit cocky. And to see him in a much different state, at least for part of the film, I think he modulated that brilliantly. 
my my one frustration with Calvin Harrison Jr. is that he's so good in so many of these films. I just wish the films that around him were of the same level because I think when that happens, he's going to take a leap. For me, he should be on pre-allegation Jonathan Majors level. <laughs> like he is, he is on that level of I skill for me loose. as an actor. I loved him in those. I loved him in Waves as well, which is, I think, a film which you know, got a bad rap. Oh, yeah, there was, there was a massive backlash to that, but I thought he was exceptional. I thought that film was great. Um, you know you what else annoyed me about the film? Go ahead. There are too many good French actors for this film to be cast with British actors playing French but doing a British accent. Mm-hmm. Um, that really winds me up. After seeing Three Musketeers, D'Artagnan, like, there are too many, right? But maybe they want to be a it's like... They're all in that movie. Yeah, yeah, that annoyed me. And he kind of has an American accent in it, doesn't he? And it's like, I find that at this point, you know. I really need to watch that Three Musketeers film. It's so good. I can't wait for part deux. Indeed. Uh, but let us wrap this one up. It's time for our screen stream or skip on Chevalier. Uh, Calice. I would say stream because it like was quite enjoyable and the costumes were very beautiful. Costumes are great. Great gowns. Um, beautiful gowns. Yeah. <laughs> it was like as a movie to watch like the drama was like well constructed and I was into the story but I think it's the second you just think about it as a a piece of history and that this was a real person it sort of fell apart so mm. that's like why, you fell like mm-hmm. kind of yeah yeah it's, it's kind mm. of like that so yeah i would say stream yeah i agree stream mm. torn a little bit between stream and screen i'm gonna say screen i had a good enough time with this i think Kevin harrison jr is great i love the music the dueling opera stuff for as long as it lasts is great um, I just wish that the ending packed more of a punch. They should have but... ended with Marie getting a head chopped <laughs> I was waiting for that. I was like, when's it coming? <laughs> yeah. They didn't even give so, us that. Sorry, spoiler alert. Marie Antoinette. Oh, you know what? Sorry. Just to add to the annoyance about this film, where <laughs> they kind of like speak in English, but then they say, Egalité! Liberté! <laughs> that makes no sense. If you're speaking English as French, then why are you using French? You know what I mean? That's... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love the passion. I love the fire. Speak in French or don't speak in French. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We will not be speaking in French for our next section. It is time for our... Shut (laughs) dick. Shut dick. Shut dick. Shut dick. (laughs) Oh, gosh. At least you don't know what the French equivalent of like <laughs> having a hot take, because obviously it wouldn't be a literal translation. It's short take. <laughs> a take. Take the short. They, you know what? I bet they just say yeah. hot take, but hot take. Hot take. Oh, you got the hot take. Yeah. Oh, ah, bien sûr. D'accord, d'accord. Oh boy, I, I abandoned French at GCSE level and I have not thought about Wait, it much to since. To be you... French, all you need to do is get a little cigarette and go, oh, boof. That's what they ever say. It just means like, yeah. Ah, comme ça, You're reminding me of this Key and Peele skit. I think it was a French. Oh, here yeah, it is. It's the one where he's like, <laughs> where he says, I can speak French. And he comes out and it's like, yeah. and it's like, <laughs> And then he do it, it's like, oh, he has to be French. And then he's like, 
And he runs yeah. away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For people who are listening, don't understand so my funny. Google Key and Peel so French restaurant. <laughs> You'll find it. Yeah. Very funny. <laughs> It is so brilliant. I, I mean, recently watched that for the first time and I was dying. I was in tears. It's oh so God. great. Um, they also have a very good lame-miss sketch, speaking of. Again, it's not the French Revolution. It's related, but... <laughs> I need to go down on YouTube rabbit hole and watch more of those. They're great. Um, okay. Hot take. We are asking, is it possible to have a franchise without a fandom? Because... Uh, Transformers films. We've had seven of them now. Um, and for me, at least, there is a fandom there. It's definitely not as intense as a Star Wars. Well, I've never in... seen them. <laughs> I've never no, seen them with the, my eyes. We're the, 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 <laughs> the, the, true, the true ones now. <laughs> like, with the, um, we had the UK premiere this week. Uh, and we should mention, it's probably gone now, but they had like a giant Optimus Prime and a giant Optimus Primal in Leicester Square, which is very cool. And I did see some of the stuff uh, from the red carpet there. The guy dressed up as Optimus Prime from, I think, Age of Extinction. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was that particular... You'd know him on. Uh, get up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I would. Um, and, yeah, there's a fan that is definitely not as intense um, as a Star Wars or an MCU. Honestly, that might be for the better because, um, to, to, to a degree... Anyway, because when I think about what happens online with certain fandoms, it can get very bad and annoying and racist and all the rest of it. Never had that issue with Transformers. Um, as I say, at its best, the film Rise of the Beast, it reminded me of Beast Wars and you know, playing with those action figures and you know, bashing them together and all the rest of it. And that is super fun. And we are definitely there. These films, I don't, I don't, I don't have the numbers to hand, but to get to seven films in the franchise, you need to make money. And Transformers films, they make money. A couple of them, I think, have made over a billion. Uh, I think Dark of the Moon uh, was one such film. So it is possible, clearly, to have a franchise without... I mean, I say without a fandom. The fandom is there, just not as This makes loud. me think of Is It Parks and Rec, where there, is, there are dozens of us. <laughs> <laughs> or is that Arrested Development? I can't remember. Some sitcom. I am one of the <laughs> Do you dozens. think it's though? It's like a lot of things. It's like, um, yeah, we love Transformers. Being private. <laughs> well, you know, I. It's like degree, closet Transformers fam. It's like we me. we can't we can't talk about this. Like to- dead toys. We can't be outwardly. I want to look at <sighs> how many fan fiction entries there are on Ao3 for Transformers. <laughs> That's the real judge of any fandom. Is it though? You know is what? That's forty six thousand seven hundred and sixty words in Transformers or media types. Maybe it's the algorithm wow. of like, mm. like fandom. Oh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> immediately got into this. Is that like okay. with Transformers? I know what they're writing about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what can be. I mean, technically, I mean, this might be one, but like Top Gun, that's franchise now, and there's not really a fandom, is there? Mm. There's people who like. Cinema. It's like, it's like airplane guys. Right. right. I'm trying to think of like other fandoms. Well, not even fandoms. Maybe it's maybe the difference is there's fans and then there's fandoms. Like people, maybe that, that is that what we're trying to yeah. say. That kind of, mm. you know, people can enjoy. You know, like Pirates of the Caribbean. Are they like pie hearts? I don't know what they call them. 
<laughs> well, I think Fast and Furious, because you don't really ever meet people who are like, Fast and Furious is my personality life, but loads of well, people really enjoy And also I think they enjoy well, the person, the actors, rather Furious... than the franchise, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, with Fast and Furious, they, they, they don't have fans. They have family. So... <laughs> True, but we're all in the family. That's the thing. Uh, not, not a mom. It's not like a specific not... family. <laughs> in the words of John Wick, you are excommunicado. <laughs> Look, there... John Wick's another one. There's not like a massive John. People whose entire lives are just like talking about John mm. Wick all day. And I think because John Wick started out. I mean, maybe there are, but just not in the sense of the global kind of like something that always pops up. And I wonder if it's part of it because M's, I don't know, M Marvel Star Wars have like latched on in such a way where there's been fast, there's been mm. far more output of it. Therefore, there's been more kind of, it's become more of the consciousness where there's debate discourse around it. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Far more things to kind of use a meme, certainly. Um, I wonder if that's why, whereas John Wick, you know, it's been four films. There's not, you know, other things like even like the Matrix. Like, I mean, there is a Matrix fandom, but like, I, but I wouldn't say in the same vein of like Matrix. Like, I don't know. We're gonna get into like this kind of like, as you said, like my my whole personality is defined by this. I live for this franchise. Like, you know, and and you were saying earlier, Clarissa, before we recorded about going to conventions and stuff. Well, I think partially to me, I think my answer would be like the fandom i think rotates around world building and people are able to create an entire lifestyle around a certain film series or tv show because they feel like they can explore within it so star wars is so vast that there's people who yeah write fan fiction they make their own mandalorian costumes like they create their own characters they can see themselves within that world while i guess like John Wick, I, with the assassins, maybe you could be like, where do I? Fit you know what's in? got? You know what is a mm-hmm. fandomless franchise? Legally Blonde. What? Legally Blonde <laughs> one and two. I, I mean, and there's a third one coming. You know what I would say does have a fandom? Mean Girls, because there's people yes, who like that really is their yeah exactly mean girls. yeah yeah. But what's the difference then? Nostalgia certain age yeah groups? i wonder yeah i wonder yeah. it's interesting so let's start the yuga poll <laughs> i don't know it's interesting though because because <laughs> what what are things that hit what what kind of you know there's people who are like fandom would you say there's fandom for the room and not that's not a franchise but like i mean mean girls is a franchise actually but i would say with the mean girls more people identify with the original rather than mean girls one too like bring it on like people when they talk about bring it on they're not talking about bring it on you know all or nothing Although I really enjoy like Hayden Panettiere, like Manatee going like trying to do like this like fight dancing, and it's just like white girl going, <laughs> you can't see it, but I'm doing. If I can, if the audio description of me is like very light, vanilla, bussing <laughs> tables. <laughs> I wish this was a video podcast. I really do. Um, is this simply a matter of like eras, and when stuff has come out? Because I think of. Just like a few franchises in the 80s along with Transformers. I think about Rocky. I think about even early, early 90s with Terminator. These are st- films and franchises that are still sort of had 
new entries over the past like three, four years or so, franchises, but they don't have fandoms because maybe the, when when they hit big, it was in the eighties and nineties, and they haven't hasn't necessarily translated thirty years later to mm. still because they, they haven't always been consistently in the public consciousness over cu- that time. Oh, is, is Buffy's. It, well, I mean, that had a fandom. But, like, I, I suppose yeah. also, does it matter about whether there is, um, mat- like, other material? Like, of course, Star Wars has the whole kind of, like, what's it called? Clarice? That they've renamed it, the canon? The extended, extended universe. And then there's the old stuff, right? The legends. Yeah. Legends, right? Right. Legends. Star Wars so legends. Legend. Sorry. Extended yeah. universe. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that's, that's that yeah. situation. And, like, there's so much stuff with the comic books and Marvel. There's comic books have been going on for, like, you know, 80 years and all that. And there's been all these kind of variations of it. Is that the case with, like, Terminator? Is that the case with John Wick? Like, have they had that thing where people can fill in the gaps and therefore identify with different parts of it? I can't speak to Terminator and John Wick, but there has been a ton of Transformers stuff. There's been cartoons. Transformers Prime is one of the... It's probably the, the best Transformers cartoon there's been. And that's fairly... Recent, I think it started. I mean, I, my introduction to trans—it really... was originally a cartoon, wasn't it? Or was it? That... Yeah, it was really yeah. originally a cartoon. Like, 80, 86 is the. I remember watching animated movie, which a lot of people, a lot of people lord. Um, but there's been video games. I I played a bunch of them. Some of them were really good. Transformers for the Cybertron fans. Where we at? Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> that was tumbleweed. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but can I offer a comparison? It's something that feels similar but has a massive fandom, but maybe this is a geographical thing. Pokemon. I wanna be that's a cartoon the that also best. has. But that's best. like that's a fandom. That's a fandom. And people will. Make but the difference in there Pokemon. is that like it began as a cartoon. Cartoon. Began yes. as cards or cartoon or then an anime Pokemon no, cards. Cartoons. But what I'm saying, we're talking about film franchises. And, and actually, it's yeah. interesting, like, the kind of debate over films where, I don't know. But I also wonder if it also, we're coming from a place of... Are our... such Pokemon the first movie, Erasure. <laughs> it, no, it's not, actually, because I'm talking about what came first and what was more substantial. Pokemon right. the first movie, which I was there at View Cinema in Doncaster watching, Clarice. Uh, I'll have you know, um, I was an avid watcher of Pokemon. Also, the Poke Battles on SMTV Live. You had to be there, and I know some other listeners mm. were there, and it's like, Misty! You, you know, it was absolute fucking sensational television. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, like, when it's like, we're kind of getting into film franchises, and the whole thing was off to Transformers film franchises, right? Are we trying to do that? Mm-hmm. Are we doing that? Because it's like, there's been one film, then... two films of Pokemon, and one of them, oh no, maybe there's been more. Oh, there's been more. There's oh. been more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's been a lot of Pokemon films. But, but yeah, actually, I, mean, I should shut the fuck up. The Transformers started the cartoon, so I'm really just trying to shit. So I'll shut yeah. my goddamn mouth. <laughs> I, I, rescind, but yeah, no. I retract my statement. <laughs> I think you know, Transformers has that classic 86 movie, um, which a lot of people still rightfully uh, love to this day. But it didn't really... It, the first live-action film was 2007. Um, so it took a while for it to make its way to that stage, um, and yeah, it's got it's, the, the the first that that first two thousand seven film is still the best live action Transformers film. So done. I suppose then the um, quest the answer for us is that it's just maybe all of these franchises uh, have fandoms 
Just some of them aren't as much aren't as uh, loud as the others. Some of them just enjoy their fan, phantom self. It's like religion. It's like my thing, my favorite thing. It's like have your own idea. You know, if you love something, you don't have to follow it like religion. Have an idea instead of a belief. Maybe they have an idea about transformers, not a belief, and therefore they're not going to say do toxic things in the name of it. Although I'm sure someone might tweet us now and be like, actually, I got trolled the fuck from a transformers bot account. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, talking of fandoms, I don't think any of us are ready for when this Five Nights at Freddy's movie comes out. It's going to be scary, guys. <laughs> That's a very intense fandom that I think has what? not What? Freddy as in the, Freddy like, Krueger? Mainstreams. No, it's a, like, it was a video game about, um, you know, mm. Chuck E. Cheese has the animatronic. Band. No. Oh, I know what you mean, but Chuck E. Cheese is such an American game. situation. Yeah, so it was a horror game based on you're like the caretaker of this abandoned Chuck E. Cheese style restaurant and you have to like manage the place and keep the lights on and not get eaten by the animatronic puppets. But this is a thing of like that fandom is gigantic and I'm very interested in what this movie is going to be like and that's going to be a test of like fandoms transferring onto film. Kind of like Transformers. Because I don't know if how much the original transformers fandom like transferred mm. when the live action movie came out because they're quite different like it was a michael bay movie with like megan fox's ass yeah like, and the thing that was based on was toys and cartoons so i'm interested in like maybe that's part of it as well as the trend okay what's the one okay we, i was gonna say what's the one i'm really i would really like someone who's a beanie baby collector and there's a beanie baby movie coming out which just feels like more about like like the tetris movie more than like let's like turn these beanie babies into characters like i feel like that i'm waiting for that movie like for me i'm waiting for someone yeah, like to do the beat like the pokemon like but do beanie babies but bring these beanie babies to life could you imagine getting princess diana um, baby to life <laughs> oh my God. and they actually put in a car crash <laughs> I'm gonna... <laughs> can i say that for civilian civilian <coughs> families yes they need a movie yeah. <laughs> What are you going to say? Your... Which, which, what's mine? I like a lot of mine have, you know, gotten to the big screen and done their thing from when I was like, I used to watch uh, the Zoya cartoon. That's been a film. I used to obviously Batman the animated series. I grew up with that. That's obviously done its thing. Um, <laughs> there was for a second going to be a Powerpuff Girls TV show, and that got nixed. But I did watch that back in the day. Yeah, with Diablo um, Cody, but they've know. had to read they're rewriting it because I think they they were too old. To, I think they didn't like the direction of it, the what how it was working out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Powerpuff Girls into the power. They should do a they should do a <laughs> totally spies live action. Oh, I never watched I that. <laughs> if we're talking about cartoons, I want or I want Courage the Cowardly Dog. Bring him to the big screen. You want what? Courage the Cowardly Dog is the greatest cartoon show. Is it? Was it was a little dog. <laughs> a little dog, and he lived in like a Lynchian nightmare world <laughs> with his owners who were like a very elderly that. couple. I think Courage the Cowardly Dog was the gateway drug to all Lynch for like kids growing up in the 90s. Uh, amazing. Uh, well, on that note, on those wonderful cartoons, which you will absolutely seek out <laughs> I wanna, and, I wanna, ah real monsters I'm waiting for the Daria Daria live action would be sick get Aubrey Plaza 
That actually would be really good. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, this is taking me back. Simpler times. Simpler times. Um, thank you for tuning in and happy viewing via whatever medium is safest for you. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It makes a difference. And tweet us any questions or hot takes at BetaBlackPod on Twitter. I am at Amon Woman on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm at Hannah Nestlin on Instagram. And I'm at Clarice Lou on Twitter and at Clarice Lockery on Instagram. And beep, boop, beep, boop. Is that R2D2 screaming? <laughs> oh, God. I can't do it. I can't do it. I tried. <laughs> Farewell, film friends. It's time to roll out and fade to black.